0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Enjoyed singing this morning with the people of God here, singing the praises of our God and Ethan is right. We rehearse the gospel. We rehearse it so that we don't ever move past it. We rehearse it so that we preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of what our hope is, our hope is not in ourselves. Not even after we come to know Christ as Savior, our hope is always squarely in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the, the fact that the tomb is empty, and that He's one day coming to reign again. Well, we've been walking through this, but before I jump into the text, I was out in our community this week and I was um, in a uh, in a coffee shop. Um, no secret that I'm a big fan of coffee, and uh, I was there in a coffee shop, and I was talking to uh, the barista who is a believer. He's a member of a church here in, in the Spartanburg community, and uh, he was. Uh, we were talking, and I was telling him about Toronto, and I said, yeah, we're leaving this Tuesday uh, for our first trip to Toronto uh, to, to go there. Well, his words to me were probably what a lot of people would think. He, he said, uh, why Toronto? Because you know, you think of a mission trip or you think of a mission effort and, and Canada maybe is not on, the, on your, your first response list. Uh, maybe they're thinking um, Africa or, or South America or somewhere like that. But, uh, but Toronto, he said, why Toronto? And here was the reason I gave him. Uh, number one is that in, in uh, and you know this, I've told you before, that uh, in, the, in Canada itself, There is one church that is preaching the gospel for every 124,000 people. So there is extreme lostness, extreme darkness there. Number two, over 50% of the people who live in Toronto are from outside of Canada, which means they're coming in from all of those places that you might think of when you think of a mission effort. We're going to go to Toronto and reach the people of the world. And number three, the, the thing that I came to with him is I just said... We just sense God leading us to Toronto. We believe that God is sending us as a faith family to Toronto. And this Tuesday, we will leave. Um, myself and, and Clay and Ethan, uh, we're going to leave Tuesday night and, uh, and fly out Wednesday morning uh, early and, and, uh, and head to Toronto. And we'll be there, and we're going to be on the scene, seeing the city. Uh, talking to those who are leading the effort to plant churches in Toronto, meeting church planners, and uh, I think it 's fitting for us as a congregation to pray specifically for this. This is not a one, uh, an in and out, an over and done mission trip. Uh, in case you weren't here when we were launching this and praying through this as a faith family, we 're intending to send uh, teams from this congregation repeatedly, as often as we can into toronto over the course of a year two years for as many years as it takes to where we sense that god is no longer leading us to toronto Uh, we we believe that there is a people in toronto that god is already already set his sights on and they will come to know him as lord and savior and god is leading us to be the ones who tell them the gospel there was a line in that song a minute ago that we sang that we sang that last twilight paris song that we just sang that He is Lord of all. And if we believe that, then we cannot stay in our comfortable uh, South Carolina environment. We've got to get out. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us as a faith family to pray for this trip, this, this first trip to Toronto, and that God would open the doors for many, many trips after this, that God would open the, the eyes and the hearts of... Uh, not yet believers who were there, that God would put us with the right people on the field so that we can be there for a long time for the success of God's kingdom. So would you join me as we pray for the work in Toronto? Let's pray. For Jesus, we as a faith family um, are on... For some of us, uncomfortable ground. For me, it's uncomfortable ground because I don't know what I'm getting into. We don't know what we're going to get into. But God, we are right now believing that we are obedient to you and going to Toronto. And Lord, we know that there is nothing there that will take you by surprise. Father, there is nothing there. There is no arrangement. There is, there is no part of this trip or part of any other trip that will take you by surprise. You are sovereign and in control, and God, we at the outset just acknowledge that you are in control. We are placing ourselves in your hands, and God's saying, use our lives, use the life of this congregation any way that you please. God, I'm praying that in this first trip, God, we as a faith family, we want to see you begin to knit the hearts of church planting pastors And families that are living there in the Toronto area, knit their hearts with our heart. God, that as Clay and Ethan and myself go this week, God, I pray that you would put us together with, with particular church planters or one church planter, that we would be able to say, we sense a real leading here of God saying, this is where I want you to focus. God, would you give us that? God, I pray, Lord, that that you would begin to do that, and God, you would show us what we would do going forward. God, I pray also that for the people who are right now living and working, playing, walking the streets, doing life in Toronto, God, I pray that you would begin to call people out from among that midst to yourself. God, that you would use the efforts of those who are there who are Christians and who are preaching the gospel. Lord, use them now. And God, use them after we come. But God, I pray that you would also use us as we go. God, that we would see people come out of darkness, out of the darkness, the lostness that's there. And God, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. That they would would come from a place of seeing the word of the cross as foolishness to suddenly seeing Christ as both powerful and wise and worth giving their lives to. Lord, I pray, God, for every every need that may arise, Lord, that you would protect us as we travel. But, God, if, if it calls for us to suffer in some way so that your name might be glorified, God, I pray that you would do that. God, lead us, lead us to lay down our lives and to say that we are not living for this world, But God, use us to bring glory to your name among the people of Toronto and among the people of the upstate of South Carolina and wherever we live, work, and play. Would you send us often in your name? I pray this. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you are there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've been walking through this book together. Um, We'll continue to walk through this together. Paul is writing this letter because the people of Corinth um, are moving on to other things. The people in the church at Corinth are believers. He does not deny that. In fact, he affirms that. He calls them as saints, those who have been called to God. But he also knows that in their midst there is division, that they are divided over, over certain things. And we looked last week at the fact that they are lining up behind their favorite preachers. And they are leaving the gospel, the simplicity of the message of the gospel that Paul preached, and they are moving on to things that are more weighty in their estimation. They're moving on to philosophy and other thoughts. And Paul is writing this letter to call them back and remind them that there is nothing beyond the gospel. That, that there, there, are we can dive deeper into knowing God, but when it comes down to it, there is nothing that will save us other than the gospel. And we need not move on to philosophy or thoughts of men. So without any further, let's read this together and let me walk through and show you three things this morning. Um, Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, the, the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This morning, I want to show you in this that there is no greater task than we can give ourselves to than to preach this word of the cross. But in doing so, we have to understand that there are two perspectives on the word of the cross. And these are laid out for us, stated very quickly very clearly in verse 18. These two perspectives are when you talk about Christianity, when you talk about Christ, when you talk about the cross, people will react in one of two ways. That's foolish. Why would you ever pursue that? Why would you, why would you follow after that? Why would you give your life to that? Or they will follow that and they will agree because they too know that the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now you say, well, maybe you're here and you say, wait a minute, I don't know that I fit into either of those two categories. I'm not ready to follow Christ, but I, I don't know that I would say it's foolish to follow Christ. I'm just somewhere in the middle. I'm just sort of seeking. And what you don't understand is that you are in one of those two camps. not because Maybe that's not, not fully your attitude, but it's not about your attitude toward, but it's about the position from which you come. There's two positions here, and they are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And I would right off the bat tell you, this is, this, in some ways you come in and you feel like, well, boy, this is just that old school fire and brimstone preaching. I'm talking about hell. When in reality, yes, there is hell. And you're in one of two places this morning. You are either on your way to hell or you are in the process of being saved. And there's no middle ground. You're, you're, not, you're not some um, special case where, where we have to weigh your situation differently. The Bible teaches that you are either perishing or you are being saved. Well, to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. And if we, if we take just a minute and stand back as Christians and, and look at this, trying to see it through the eyes of someone who is not a believer... Let's admit that, that in some ways what we're asking people to believe in a, in a strictly human standpoint does sound somewhat foolish. Let's just be honest with that. It's hard for me to even say that without feeling like I'm being blasphemous, but if we're honest, it, it, it is. No one in their right mind would write a plan of redemption like this. Do you understand this? I mean, if you were going to write a plan of redemption, you would not write it this way. I mean, God Himself enters the womb of a virgin girl. A teenager. He's born into poverty. I mean, this is God coming into the womb of a teenage girl who's a virgin. He's born into poverty, into obscurity. No one knows him. He doesn't travel all over the world. He doesn't write books. He's not educated. He's not rich. At 30 years old, he begins to, to preach and teach and do miracles, and it confounds the, the, the religious leaders of the day. I mean, it just blows their mind and causes this great upheaval in the land of the day. He begins to teach things with authority. Really? He begins to, to do miracles like feeding multitudes from one boy's lunchable. He, he takes this little boy's lunch and feeds a multitude out of this lunch. And, and we're asking people to believe this. He does things like he walks on water He speaks to demons, and and they they heed him, and they they flee from him. He heals the lame. He heals the sick. He even calls the dead back to life. He causes such a disturbance in this community and this world of his day, this uneducated, obscure man, that they have enough and they nail him to a tree. It doesn't end there because after they nail him to a tree and he dies there on that tree, they place him into a tomb and three days later he comes back to life. Now let's just, let's just admit coming from the outset that if, if we don't have the aid of the Spirit in our lives, if God doesn't show us the truth of this, then this sounds a little ludicrous. It sounds a little hard to believe. It sounds a little foolish. This is why Paul could write in verse 23 that this is a stumbling block to the Jews. They looked back at scripture and back at Deuteronomy and it said that anybody who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So they looked at this Messiah, this is the Messiah that you're claiming is is the son of God. You're saying he's the Messiah? He can't be. He was hanged on a tree. The religious people of the day rejected it. They think it's foolish. The thinkers of the day, they they think this is is crazy. No one would kill their Messiah. The Messiah does not die. The Messiah comes in and rescues. This is not the way you would do it. So if we're honest, from a mere human standpoint, it's understandable why some would say, yeah, right. Because no one would save the world this way. No one would kill their Messiah. But the other perspective is this. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. To us, it makes perfect sense. It's powerful and it's beautiful and it's perfectly logical. It is worth dying for and it's worth giving your life in pursuit of this. So the, the question that we ask or that's obvious out of this text is how can two people see the same thing so differently how can one person see the message of the cross the word of the cross and say that is foolishness utter foolishness who would ever believe such a thing as that and how can another person maybe even from the same family who grew up under the same in the same home and the same environment with the same education how can that person say this is not foolish at all this is This is the wisdom and the power of God. How do we get to that? Well, to answer this question, Paul dives deeper into two different perspectives. First, I want to show you the the paths of the wisdom of the world. And then I want to show you the the power and the wisdom of God. First of all, the the paths of the wisdom of the world. In verse 20, Paul begins and, and, uh, and he says, Where's the one who is wise? This is rhetoric here. He's not expecting an answer. He, he knows no answer is, is, is needed. There's no one going to speak up. He just simply offers this rhetoric, rhetoric and he says, where's the one who is wise? And this is a reference to the Greek philosophers of Paul's day. Philosophy really had its birth and its heyday coming out of the Greek society. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. It's, if you want to know anything about life, Philosophy is where you turn. When it comes to knowledge of God, we have plenty of philosophers still today. People who want to discover God or define him as they they please. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of of years past, of the 20th century. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, the trouble today is that instead of holding truth and teaching it, men are trying to arrive at it. And this is the nature of philosophy. The nature of philosophy says we can reason our way out. We can think this thing through. We can come to this issue of God and God is, is no different than another issue of life and we can, we can sort of create what we want to believe about God. We can arrive at truth. We can come to this. We can observe life and come to the knowledge of God. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the problem because they're, they're acting like there's been no declaration made. John 1.18 says it this way. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Church, there's a world out there today that those that are living in this camp of looking at the word of the cross and saying that is foolish, they're living as if there's been no declaration made. They're living as if God has not made Him known. Let me try to, let me try to bring this home to you and, and Put this in terms of today. Let's move away from the knowledge of God and let's just look at practical things of our everyday life. Would you ever, would you ever decide, you know what, I'm, I'm putting on a little weight, I'm a little out of shape, I think I need to go join a gym. You go and check out gyms and, and you find one that you really like, it's close to your home or on your way to the office, and, and it just sort of works for you. And so you walk in and, and you walk up to the desk and say, hey, after much, much thought and deliberation, I've decided to join your gym. Well, that's great. The, the person behind the counter reaches below the counter and pulls out the form and, and begins to ask you to fill out this form to which you say, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. Um, I, I'm not interested in any contracts. Let me tell you what I'm willing to do to join your gym. Or how many of you would go to the grocery store and walk through the aisles and, and go through all the different aisles and say, oh, that looks great. I'd love to have that. I need that. And put all of this in your buggy, come up to the, to the girl at the counter at the cash register, bring your buggy through, let her scan all those items, ask you for that little fob thing on your keychain and all that, and then she says, okay, that'll be 140 something dollars And you say, no, 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 you don't understand. Let me tell you what I'm, what I'm willing to pay for, for this. Or what if it comes April 15th? And, and you, you've you worked all year long. You've not paid any taxes all year long. The IRS comes knocking on your door. And, and instead of you saying, you're right, you caught me, this is what I owe. Instead, you look at the IRS and say, hey, hey, you've got things all wrong. Let me tell you what I think should happen here. See, we would never dream of approaching a gym membership or grocery shopping or paying our taxes to our government in a way in which we would philosophize our way out of this and say, this is what I believe about these situations. Why is it when it comes to God, we treat the IRS with more honor and respect than we do God? If John one eighteen is right that the Father has made Him known, what makes us think that we can now tell the Father what He's really like? There's a world that says, let me reason my way to God. I believe I can arrive at the truth about God. This is what I believe about God. I I could never believe in a God like that. Your God is too narrow. Maybe it's not that my God is too narrow. Maybe it's that my God is. And you just don't like who he is. There's a world that says the word of the cross is foolish and I would, I would, I would issue this, this statement or this question to if you're in this situation and you think it is foolish and you attempt to say I could never believe in a God like this because I believe that God is like this I would say to you what, what if you're wrong? What if, what if you come to the end of your life and you were wrong? What if He really does exist the way He has revealed Himself and you have to stand before Him? Are you going to stand in that moment and say, no, 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 I could never believe in a God like you? Because it doesn't really matter in that moment what you believe about Him, He is. And I would say to you that it doesn't matter what you believe in this moment about who He is, He is. The other path of the wisdom of the world is not reason, but it is religion. It's those who say, I'll go the opposite direction. I won't, I won't try to arrive at the truth. I'm going to try to achieve favor with this God. And this is what he says here when he goes on, and he says, Where is the scribe? And he was talking about the religious people of Paul's day, of his day. I've used this illustration before, but every year in the Philippines. Every year in the Philippines around Easter, there are scores of people who re-crucify themselves. This is a huge ritual there. They will pull out crosses and and they will will go through the the ritual. of They will be flogged, whipped with with leather strands. They will have crowns of thorns pressed on their heads. They will have nails driven through their hands and their feet, nailing them to, to planks of wood. And here's why they do this. Because they believe that the word of the cross was... A word, but not a final word. Not a definitive word. Not a finished word. And so what they believe is that every year I must come back and I must do penance. I must make amends for the sins of my life. And somehow I know within the core of my being that I have offended this God. And therefore I've got to make myself right with Him. you say, well that's crazy. I would never do that. That makes me not want to go to the Philippines. The reality is right here in Greer, Woodruff, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, there are people every single week that are going through religious motions just in the same way. There are people who attend church services every Sunday morning from week to week, re-sacrificing themselves on the altar of church attendance, trying to make ends meet. They come in and and they feel like, hey, I I did my thing for this Sunday. God is pleased with me. And they go out in the world and their life takes over and the sin that it shows itself in their life not because simply because they are a sinner they have this nature within them that is it is uh, drawn to going away from god and so as the week carries on it gets closer to sunday and they think well i've got to get back to church because uh, you know i'm running short on funds here What I earned last week is is about to run dry, so I've got to go and earn a paycheck again. These are the ways of, of the wisdom of the world. The essence of religion is doing to earn the favor of God. People all around us are not trusting in the word of the cross. Paul goes on and he says, there is this perspective, this one that says the word of the cross is foolish. It's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. That's what I want to show you. I want to take the last bit of our time showing you the power and the wisdom of God. Verse 19, he says this. He quotes from an Old Testament passage. He says, for it's written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. This is quoted from Isaiah 29 14, and it's in a section of scripture where the Israelites are being reminded that they are not a match for God. They should humble themselves and stand back and just submit to God because they have have no ability to match wits with God. They can't argue with Him. What makes them think they could try? But I would argue with you isn't this human nature? Isn't this human nature to think that we're always right? To think that we have the better opinion, that the world revolves around us, and that really the world should submit to us. We see this all the time. Just go back to that grocery store again. Someone, you're standing in line. Someone comes and cuts in front of you in that line. I realize there's etiquette there. Or someone, better example, someone gets in the line where it says uh, 10 items or less. And they've got about 45 items in their cart. I mean, all of a sudden, you, you well up with this sense of pride. Don't you know where you are? And you want to take their buggy and move it for them. Boy. This is human nature to think that we are right and that we are entitled. Customers routinely question their mechanics. You ever done this? Take your car into a mechanic. Hey, hey, it's making this noise. I don't know what that is. He comes back and he says, hey, it's this and it's going to be this amount. And suddenly you become an expert. You sure about that? Have you checked the... I bet you doctors hate WebMD. You go to see your doctor and the doctor says, here's your problem, your problem's this. Oh, but doctor, I was doing some research and I saw on WebMD that if, if this is going on, that it could possibly be this. Don't you know the doctor inside is saying, shut up. <laughs> this is the nature of us as people. People. We think that we are always right. And here God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 14 displays the attitude maybe that we should have. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Don't you think this is more the attitude that we should have to say, God, you're God, I'm not. Instead of, instead of coming before God and saying, God, I could ever believe in you if you're this way, shouldn't we in, indeed just instead just say, God, you are who you are. I cannot understand you. I would not have done it that way, but I'm not God. You are. You have the right to do whatever you want to because this is your creation. I'm your creation. The clay has no, no authority to say anything to the potter. The clay simply has to be molded as the potter molds. He goes on and he says, after he says where's the, 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 the wise, where's the, the scribe, he says where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I'm going to ask you this question. Are we better off today than we were four years ago? That's a question you've heard lately and I'm not getting political. I would take it further and I would say are we better today than we were 100 years ago? or 1,000 years ago. Because in 100 years, do you realize the technological advancements we have made in 100 years? Do you realize the advancements we have made in science in 100 years, let alone 1,000 years? Do you realize there was a time when a man discovered fire? Fire? Now we we have these gadgets that fit in our pockets that we pull out and we can buy things in in on the other side of the world with these little things in our pockets. We have so many advancements in science and technology. And are we better off? Are we closer to peace? Have we eliminated poverty? Have we gotten rid of hunger in our world? Have we eradicated crime? Is everybody you know acting very moral? When God here says, I will destroy the wisdom of the world, I will make foolish the wisdom of the world, He has done exactly that, and our our world shows that. For every bit of technical advance we make, we still have the same problems. You can't turn on a football game without seeing everybody wearing pink. I'm all for cancer research. But I want to point to something behind it. For all of the technical advance that we have made, we have not yet discovered. Maybe one day we will. But the fundamental core reality of our soul is there is lostness. There is deadness in us because of sin The reality is, what we need to know about life and about God and about the most fundamental needs of humanity cannot be attained through human ingenuity. They can only be found in the revelation of God. So who are we to come to the word of the cross and how God has revealed Himself and say, that's stupid. Who would ever believe in something like that? Who would write a plan of, of reconciliation? Of redemption like that? The Bible here says that God would destroy the wisdom of the world. He would make it foolish. And then the the flip side of this, or the the, the, the affirmative or positive side of this, is Paul says in verses 21 through 25, let me read it again. Let me start in in, uh, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Did you miss how... They come to that place. The fundamental question of this text is how can, how can one person see the word of the cross as foolishness and how can another person see the word of the cross as powerful in wisdom? Well, I believe it's summed up in, in these two actions of God. That He destroys the wisdom of the world in the human heart and that He calls. He leads us to see the Futility of the pursuits. And then he calls us to himself. It's an act of grace that is beyond measure. It is without explanation. This is what this is what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John chapter three when he said, Nicodemus. You feel the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It blows wherever it wants. And I would tell you, church, in the same way, the Spirit of God moves, He destroys, and He calls as He pleases. This is what the the writer is talking about in Ezekiel chapter 37 when when he stands there and he says, Can you speak to these dry bones and call them to life? he says, Only you, God, can do that. Only you know. He instructs them to speak to them and get up and, and live. And suddenly these bones, these, this valley of dry bones, begin to rattle. Flesh comes on them and they stand up and they are alive and they are an army for God. And this is the picture of salvation. How does someone come to be a A believer? It happens when God destroys the worldly wisdom in their life and then calls them to their self. The great question, how does this happen? The answer is in the worldly wisdom destroying and the belief creating power of God. Verses 23 and 24 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This word power is is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. The power of God is not just a power to destroy, but it's also a power to create. This is the power that raised God from the dead, raised Christ from the dead. And this is the power that God works in you to, to move you from the place of worldly wisdom to the place of gospel belief. When this happens, you can't explain it. I mean if you've had this, if, if you've had this experience, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but if, if this has happened to you, you can't explain it. There are some of you in this room that, that you were at one time a hater of God. You were opposed to Him, violently opposed to Him, didn't want anything to do with organized religion, maybe. But suddenly, one day, the gospel broke in on your life and it made sense and it was clear and, and it, was, it was compelling and you didn't have an option. You just, I mean, it was the most sensical thing you could do. And John Piper says it this way For some of you, it might have been like a thunderbolt. For others, it might have been like a little blade of grass. Have you ever seen a little blade of grass split the sidewalk, he says? You're walking along and you see this. You say, you look down at the asphalt and you see this little blade of grass that's come up through the asphalt, split the asphalt. Little blade of grass. And he, he tells this account and he says, he's walking along, he sees this, and he looks down and he says, what are you made of, little blade of grass? And he reaches down and he picks the blade of grass out from between the crack in the cement or the asphalt. And it's just soft. It's just wet. It's just a blade of grass. Yet it broke the sidewalk wide open. And maybe for some of you, that's the way God is. He can come with a thunderbolt and turn you around. Or it can be such a quiet thing that suddenly having sat under the reign of the Spirit and the Word, you realize that the cement of your heart has been cracked and life is there. And suddenly you say to yourself, I'm alive. I'm alive. And how does that happen? The only way that happens is when God destroys the worldly wisdom in in your mind. And calls you to himself. So church, I know what time it is. And for the sake of time, I want to give you some application for us out of this. I want to do this quickly. So if you've got a pen and you want to jot these things down, jot them down. If if not, you can listen to them later on the recording. But this is the application. This is the plan for the people of God. Because the word of God always calls us to action. Number one. Number one. Preach exclusively. Preach an exclusive gospel. Don't water it down. Don't don't mix it or taint it with the philosophy of this world or the religion of this world, but preach the exclusivity of the word of the cross. It's not a message. It's the message. Number two, preach indiscriminately. Preach indiscriminately. Preach exclusively and preach indiscriminately. I want you to notice in the passage, he says, to the perishing, to those who are being saved, to the wise, to the scribes, to the debaters of this age, to Jews and to Gentiles, don't miss that every single person that falls into each of those groups heard the gospel. We should never we should never look preach exclusively the gospel but let us never be satisfied to preach the exclusive gospel to an exclusive group. Let us never think that it's only for people like us who think like us but let us preach indiscriminately. Let's go to Toronto and preach the gospel Let's let's go to uh, let's go to the F state and preach the gospel. And when when people shake their fingers in our faces and disagree with us, let us not count it that they are rejecting us, but they are rejecting the word of the cross. But it is not our place to become offended because of that. We are to preach the exclusive gospel indiscriminately to everybody that God would put us in the path of. Third, preach dependently. Preach dependently. I realize that some of you hear me use these these three application points, and they each start with preach, and you think, wait a minute, I'm not a preacher. You're You're the preacher. So are these application points for you? No, they are very much in every way application points for every single one of us. If you are a believer here today with the Spirit of God living in you, you have been given the same great commission that I have. I don't have some special marching orders that you don't have. You've been called to preach. So preach exclusively, preach indiscriminately, preach dependently. Say, dependently on what? Dependently on the worldly wisdom destroying power of God and on the belief-creating power of God. Some of you may have a coworker, or a family member or a friend or a neighbor who you've been talking to for, for a while or maybe you've thought about talking to them about the gospel, but, but maybe in your mind you've, you've given up or you've thought they would, they would never... They would would never receive the gospel. I mean, look at their life. Look at the fruit of their life. I mean, they're just worldly. They're they're worldly wise. They think this thing that I'm in is, is foolish. They think the word of the cross is foolishness. It's folly to them. Don't forget they're perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And where were you when the gospel broke into your life? Were you living a holy life? Were you pursuing the things of God? Would, would someone have looked at your life and said, you know what? Boy, that guy right there, he's a candidate for the gospel. They may say that, but they're saying it for another reason. They're not saying it because you are, you are religious and holy. You're not spiritual. They said it because you needed the gospel. Church, let us preach the gospel. Let us preach the gospel with words and with our lives. As we leave from here, I started off the service saying that the, the measure of success of this church is not so much how this service goes as much as it is how life this week goes as you go with the gospel. Let's preach the gospel. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for your power in our lives, your power through your word. God, today I, I pray that, that in this place, God, that you might, you might move on the hearts of some people in this room with a thunderbolt. But God, also I know that maybe you might move today in this room like a little blade of grass. But God, either way, would you split the concrete of our hearts? Would you destroy the wisdom of this world in us, and God, would you create belief and faith in our lives. Your word has the power, the dunamis, not only to destroy, but also to create, and God, we're asking you to do that now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.